Hey everyone, welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. We're on Meet Kevin Report number 48. It is Saturday, March 11th. A lot to cover today. We're going to talk about, of course, contagion risk regarding Silicon Valley Bank. We're going to look at some new information that we haven't yet covered regarding Silicon Valley Bank, just the latest and greatest, and it's pretty wild. Uh, then we'll also look at... <coughs> Excuse me. Then we'll also look a little bit at uh, China, especially, <coughs> my goodness, especially uh, some allegations regarding uh, Elon Musk uh, in China. We'll look at some items regarding Elon Musk and Elon Musk's potential uh, uh, responses to the Silicon Valley Bank and uh, uh, even potentially uh, some other uh, responses from Elon. So a lot to cover. Uh, I did yesterday, by the way, if you haven't seen the picture yet, have the privilege, which I'm very happy of, have the privilege of uh, meeting Kathy Wood. That was really cool. And we, uh, we met for a dinner. And uh, yeah, it's um, it's such a small world, the finance community. And I think that's something that is actually really cool for everybody to think about is even if you have different perspectives from somebody else, you, you could really learn different ideas and uh, different ways of looking at things by talking to people, whether that's uh, talking to Ben Mala uh, or it's talking to, um, uh, you know, Peter Schiff out in Puerto Rico. Uh, and, you know, I've got pretty different opinions from Peter Schiff. I certainly align much more with, with uh, Kathy Wood than, than Peter Schiff, but uh, it, it's still so fascinating what, um, what we get to, you know, basically share opinions on and share ideas on. So it's really cool. So uh, I'd like to get this functioning, but I'm having, I think probably every technical difficulty I could possibly have today has been occurring. Uh, and uh, I actually am now surprised because now I'm coming across yet another problem that I wasn't even expecting. Hold on a second. Oh dear, I always bring backups of things, but this is what happens when you travel. It's just things break, and even if you have backups, uh, solutions don't necessarily work. <laughs> but uh, yeah, boy oh boy, it is, uh, it is exhausting to travel and try to actually go live. Uh, okay, wow, this is quite remarkable. I have no idea why now, apparently I can't share anything on my devices. Um, okay, well, that's a little bit of a bummer. This might take me a potential minute here to get through. But uh, but anyway, I suppose I'll, before we get started here, I'll just uh, mention that uh, uh, the um, one thing that is neat, uh, a big thing about the finance community is when, when you think about not just the different opinions, uh, and, and uh, I mean, there are a lot of people that sort of back on each other in, in the finance community. Really, the, the, everybody's goal is to make money, right? So I always thought it was kind of funny because you kind of have this this war in the finance world where people are throwing mud at each other, but really what they're doing is is they're, they're, they're trying to help people who are watching make money. So it's kind of like imagine you're going to a fight and uh, when the person wins that you're rooting for, you make money. <laughs> it's not just you win, it's also you make money. <laughs> I, thought, I always thought that was really cool about, uh, about finance. So that's very exciting. Um, okay, let me try one more time here. Good lord, I've just uh, not sure. Yesterday, yesterday was pretty wild. I dropped, uh, I, f I slipped and fell and scratched myself as I was running and everything was wet outside. And then I lost my wallet. <laughs> Last night was kind of a little poopy. Uh, okay, well, there we go. Okay, yeah, that might be the problem. It might be because I fell and dropped everything. <laughs> okay, but I think I've solved it now. So that's fantastic. Let's give it a quick little test. Make sure we're solved. 
I believe we are. Uh, I also, for some reason, you know, I was, I was talking up those uh, Bluetooth headphones from Apple. These guys right here. And uh, they're like, they're so terrible at actually connecting via Bluetooth. Like once they do, they're phenomenal. But I think I spent a good 15 minutes trying to get them to connect to my, my uh, MacBook Air. And nope, <laughs> just decided today we are not using headphones. So it's, it's, it's funny how like it seems like when there's a problem, everything breaks. But that's okay. We can still, the show must go on, as I always like to say. So here we go. All right, backup strategy worked. Take a look at this. I'll, I'll share this. Uh, there we go. There's uh, Kathy and Kevin, <laughs> which is kind of cool. I was pretty excited about that. Uh, so anyway, okay, we've got, uh, we're going to start now with Silicon Valley Bank, and uh, we'll go through some of uh, my commentary on the latest here. Uh, we'll also obviously address what's going on with uh, Circle and uh, USDC, which is quite scary. But uh, I do have some, it's not, it's not all going to be bad news, <laughs> fortunately. Okay, so stand by, and then now that we're actually functioning... We'll be able to get into Silicon Valley Bank here, and uh, we'll get started. Actually get started. <laughs> I thought I was going to be okay, um, but that's all right. Sometimes those little issues pop up. Okay, Silicon Valley Bank, here we go. Okay, sorry. Sorry again for all that delay. Mm -hmm. We've got to talk Silicon Valley Bank and all the craziness that's not just happened yesterday, but that is now unfolding after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. So we're going to be talking about what's uh, happening with the Federal Reserve, what are they pricing in, who just got fired at the Federal Reserve. We're going to be talking about what the insiders at Silicon Valley Bank are doing, what kind of a talk there is in terms of which businesses might actually be affected, and these are quite a few public companies. Uh, we'll also talk about potentially what's going to happen on Monday and what the heck is going on with USDC, uh, the circle-backed stablecoin that has potentially now depegged by a total of 8.8% as of the time of this recording. It's pretty remarkable. On top of that, you've got venture capitalists absolutely freaking out. Complete disaster and SH9T show. So let me give you a very quick synopsis. Basically, you had a bank that had somewhere around $211 billion in assets. And then when they actually marked to market, which basically means like, hey, you're saying you have all these assets, but what's the true fair market value of those? When they did that, they were basically insolvent. Once rumors started spreading that, uh-oh, this bank is insolvent, people started getting worried about their ability to retain access to their cash on hand with this bank. That represented 50% of Silicon, well, close to 50% of Silicon Valley startups. They say they, they have almost all of the banking needs for about 44% of Silicon Valley banked startups. And that's because when they give uh, startups loans, they'll have covenants in their loan agreements that say, hey, if you want to be able to work with our loans, our easy lines of credit, and our easy lending for startup, you have to have all of your banking at Silicon Valley Bank. So in other words, you've got about this 44% group of startups that just primarily bank at Silicon Valley Bank. They were the go-to people for startup loans, and you couldn't have a banking relationship somewhere else. Which, what's really weird is now that the bank has collapsed, sort of makes you wonder, oh crap, if the bank collapsed, then people even though they knew they should probably get out, 
probably didn't get out because that would violate their loan covenants of taking your money out of the bank, right? So imagine if you're a business, right? You're a startup and you've got a million dollars of, of payroll every month that you got to pay. That's $250,000 a week in payroll that you have to pay every Friday potentially. So let's say you have money over at the bank and you're like, well, crap, I'm, I'm actually using a line of credit to fund my business right now because I'm a startup and we're in a recessionary environment and new venture capital funding is pretty dry. Okay, Silicon Valley Bank is, is falling apart. Oh no, maybe I should get my money out. But wait, if I get my money out, I lose access to my lines of credit. I can't get my money out. Then you're stuck. Now you lose access to everything as the company collapses. Not only do you lose access to your line of credit, but you lose access to whatever cash you had left. It's a complete SH9T show. And there are some people going as far as saying this, what has just happened, sets a vast majority of Silicon Valley startups back potentially 10 years because think about it, you got phenomenal potential startup ideas that now don't actually have access to capital to operate anymore. Potentially, they have to lay off staff if they don't get access to that capital. And it's not just access to the cash, it's also access to the credit lines, right? So even if via FDIC on Monday somehow we get cash out, if they don't have access to the, the, the easy lending anymore, you could actually really crimp the entire startup space and you're not getting new venture investment. Not really. I mean, you are getting some in, in sort of like a chat GPT AI style companies, but uh, to me, the valuations are so frothy over there. Anyway, that I wouldn't recommend doing that at this point. Uh, but what's remarkable is this potential idea that, my goodness, how many startups, like even companies that have really matured from startup stage, like Matterport, Bill.com, uh, Roblox, Roku, these are all massive companies that started in Silicon Valley and have a lot of association with Silicon Valley Bank. Matterport has stopped sending payments uh, through Silicon Valley Bank. They used to have their uh, accounts payable go into Silicon Valley Bank. Now they're changing uh, banks, obviously, because the bank's going into receivership. You've got Roblox that was exposed to uh, Silicon Valley Bank by quite a bit. Roblox had about $150 million at Silicon Valley Bank. That only represents about 5% of their cash. Lending Club had about 21 million. Rocket Lab had 38 million. Uh, that's about 8% of their cash. Matterport switching banks to JP Morgan. Etsy was using Silicon Valley Bank for uh, some of its, uh, uh, some of its uh, providers, for, some, uh, for payouts to sellers. Uh, Roblox had, uh, we mentioned, about 5% of their cash. This was an interesting one. Roku said they had about 25% of their cash sitting in a Silicon Valley bank account. Ouch, one-fourth of their cash. And keep in mind, Roku's still burning money. That's one of the complaints that I have about Roku is they're burning money. Uh, it kind of uh, <laughs> it makes me a little nervous. Uh, Sunrun was a company that uh, potentially has 15% exposure to Silicon Valley Bank. And these are all companies that have a lot more than the $250,000 FDIC insurance limit. Remember, you get $250,000 of FDIC insurance limit per person per, per account, and that includes potential accrued interest that you're owed. So if you're a big startup and you've got tens of millions of dollars there, you might not have access to 99% of your capital at Silicon Valley Bank for, for a very long period of time, if ever. Remember, the way FDIC receivership works is FDIC is taking over the bank as we speak right now. On Monday, they will actually open up the branches again, and you can bet people are just going to be queuing up and lining up to get their money out. In fact, that's exactly what they were doing on Friday. You could see this uh, Twitter, let's see here, look at this Twitter video right here. Uh, you could just see people lining up 
uh, queuing outside of these banks. There it is, Silicon Valley Bank. And you had a lot of this. It wasn't just this. You had a lot of posts like this circulating on Twitter about people queuing up at the bank to get their money out to the point where security guards at these banks had to lock the doors and put signs in, like, basically saying, come back Monday. Now, at the same time as you had all this drama going on, listen to this. The CEO sold 11% of his shares in the company, $3.57 million just 12 days ago. So the CEO probably saw the writing on the wall that they were insolvent. I mean, after all, remember, you could look at their Q4 earnings statement. And when you look at their Q4 earnings statement, you could actually see how close to insolvent they were in December. And things have only gotten worse since December. And now we find out that the CEO sold 11% of his shares and he hadn't been selling in years, just all of a sudden happens to sell right before this collapse. Doesn't seem sus at all. Doesn't at all seem like insider trading. Uh-huh. Yeah, nothing, go nothing to see here, folks. And then on top of that, the CFO sold about uh, $375,000 of shares also 12 days ago. So something happened 12 days ago, I think, where they woke up and realized, oh, honey, we've got a little bit of a problem at the bank. Maybe we ought to, uh, since we know about it, since we're insiders, maybe we ought to sell some of our shares. Uh, but it wasn't just the CEO or the CFO. You also had the CMO uh, selling early last month and uh, – or. Uh, uh, sorry, it was, uh, yeah, early February and late January, also selling. All three of these top executives selling out uh, at least some of their stake right before this collapse. It's not a good look. The CEO, by the way, was apparently a director at the San Francisco Federal Reserve. This shows you how deep this insanity goes. Uh, so let me say that again. The CEO of Silicon Valley Bank was one of the directors at the San Francisco Federal Reserve, and he was promptly fired after this, uh, this disaster, this banking uh, crisis, and pretty bad look to be selling shares of the company that you know is about to go to hell. But let me just quickly show you again how you could see how close they were to insolvency as of December 31st, which, remember, we're almost through the first quarter. So these financials are already like 71 days old. So you know the people on the inside are looking at the financials going, oh no, it's getting even worse. But look at this, all you have to do is it, it like you can make this so so simple? You go over here and look at total assets, two hundred and eleven point seven billion dollars. You look at the total liabilities right here, right? One hundred ninety-five. Oops, you can't see it. There we go. So you see the difference right here. That's about sixteen billion dollars, right? Total assets two eleven minus one ninety-five. That's about sixteen billion dollars of a difference, right? But wait a minute, folks. See this number right here? This ninety-one billion. That ninety-one billion is not actually worth ninety-one million. Or billion. In my opinion, this is just straight up fraud right here, by the way. How do I know this is not worth $91 billion? Because it literally says right here, held to maturity securities, fair value of $76.1 billion. Now, yes, if they, the reason they can get away with this is because technically if they do hold these maturities to, or sorry, these securities to maturity, they're bonds, okay? So it's kind of like, hey, if you have a three-year bond, if you hold it all the way for three years, yes, it's technically worth 91 billies. But if everybody all of a sudden needs cash because we're in a recessionary environment and the Fed's raising rates like crazy, well, you're going to have to start selling and liquidating some of your held to maturity securities, and those are going to become what are known as available for sale securities. 
Well, fantastic. Well, there goes the $16 billion difference you had. It, it leaves about a bill in the difference, but it shows you as of December 31st, they were basically insolvent already based on the public financial statements of December 31st. Quite remarkable. Uh, the insider trading is pretty remarkable as well. But another thing that's pretty wild is uh, the fact that you had $42 billion of cash withdrawn in just one day uh, from Silicon Valley Bank. That's pretty remarkable. But on top of that, apparently somewhere around uh, $3.3 billion of the uh, assets backing USDC are at Silicon Valley Bank. And as a result, now you've got what looks like a, a DPEG occurring on USDC because people are questioning how, many, how much cash is actually available to back uh, the stablecoin USDC, which is kind of wild because I don't think anybody would have ever thought that, oh my gosh, USDC would go before Tether goes. Everybody always makes fun of Tether, but it's pretty remarkable that USDC right now uh, is the one that's in DPEG mode. Look at this. 91.3 cents is where it sits right now, down 8.76. Now, in case you're not familiar with stablecoins, this is bad. This is an example of an unstable coin. And I mean, in fairness, it lost its backing, potentially, at least some of its backing. You know, you've got about, what, a $33 billion market cap over here for USDC. You've got about $3.3 billion potentially that are evaporating. So the market seems to be making that sort of adjustment. Now, a lot of people are trying to arbitrage play this. Uh, in fact, yesterday, Tether was, was sitting at $1.07 uh, in some DeFi markets. So you could have literally bought it. You could have bought Tether on something like Coinbase and then sold it for 1.07 for a $0.07 cent profit uh, per buck, which is insane, a 7% instant profit just playing arbitrage in the DeFi space. So a lot of arbitrageurs have been at work here, uh, and that is uh, generally arbitraging leads to a consistent $1 peg, but not when potentially 10% of the assets are oopsie-doopsies gone. So that's pretty scary if we go back here a little bit and just look at uh, Bitcoin. Bitcoin actually holding up through this, and so is Ethereum. In the last 24 hours, both of them roughly flat. If anything, net-net, Ethereum's up in the last 24, which is pretty remarkable. You've got uh, BUSD has been pretty stable along with uh, Tether. Again, at some point, Tether in the DeFi markets was uh, depegging. But beyond that... Hey, uh, USDC at 91 cents, it's a red flag. It's, it's, it shows you that stablecoins, we, we, we can't 100% trust stablecoins just yet. Uh, this is why one of the things that I talked about regularly since January of 2022 is I think you're better off in short-term treasuries if you're looking to yield farm, you know, six-month T-bills basically, than you are in stablecoins because the time you're going to have stress in crypto is now during a recessionary environment. Nobody knows how the cards will fall, but this is where the cards are starting to fall. Now, you have uh, these contagion risks as well, not just for crypto, but you have these contagion risks around what the CEO of Y Combinator is suggesting. He was on CNBC complaining about this idea that, oh my gosh, we could end up seeing 10 years, essentially, of, of, of startups set back. In other words, so many startups that are potentially on the cusp of, of working towards profitability or launching new products or services, 
might all be getting set back. And we don't know the implications of all of these yet. But think about it. A lot of companies in Silicon Valley provide APIs that are the foundation for a lot of different goods and services that we use. Now, we don't know, for example, if Stripe is affected. Uh, so far, it doesn't seem like they are. They haven't said anything. Uh, doesn't mean they aren't, though. But let's just say, for example, you uh, use Stripe to check out on Shopify. Uh, that is, you're a merchant and you use Stripe in all of your e-com stores. What if all of a sudden Stripe lost, like Roku, 25% of its capital and they had to freeze some of their, their, you know, they couldn't pay some of their bills and some of their servers froze? You could see how this sort of contagion can spread through because now all of a sudden the APIs break for processing payments. All of a sudden that now you have Shopify stores breaking. All of a sudden now you're lowering GDP because everything's basically frozen and it's a wall. You lose a few days, you can really start pushing the economy into an actual recession because you're robbing the market of GDP. It's kind of crazy. Uh, so that's something to think about. Uh, I, I mean, really, you could take uh, our uh, our annual GDP and divide it by about 365, and, and, and you can find that, okay, yeah, we've, we've got, you know, somewhere around uh, 65 billion bucks a day of GDP. So every single day is worth a lot of goods and service dollars. Uh, so you, you could really start breaking the economy pretty quickly because it doesn't take many of those days, not obviously that the entire economy would, would go to zero on those days, but it doesn't take many of those days to be shaved off because things are broken uh, to potentially where you're not recouping that when things are repaired again. And does that then potentially lead to other smaller bank failures, uh, whether that's a First Republic or Pacific Bank Corp. You know, these are companies that are seeing their stocks plummet because of this fear that, uh oh, the contagion is going to take them out as well. Now, the hope is that FDI receivership solves this on Monday. Uh, that is hope. Uh, personally, I don't think hope is an investing strategy, but uh, the idea is that, I mean, it's all you have right now if you're a by Silicon Valley Bank. The idea is that on Monday, when the bank goes into receivership, hopefully FDIC is basically uh, sort of a bailout mechanism for banks because venture capitalists, specifically people like David Sachs, are freaking out. And the reason they're freaking out is, well, partially in part because somebody like David Sachs uh, does support a lot of startups. Uh, that's their business, right? Uh, the all-in pod, these, these folks, they work regularly with venture uh, as venture capitalists for and in the private equity markets for startups and if all of a sudden a lot of their companies are now getting reamed or potentially risking bankruptcy that's bad for them but for them they are making these strong arguments right now that, hey, the Fed needs to come in, the banks need to come in and bail out, uh, or, or the Federal Reserve banks and uh, the larger banks need to come, out, uh, come in, potentially even the government, and bail out Silicon Valley Bank or other banks that are potentially at risk to prevent everybody from panicking. I mean, ideally, if this could just end up being, look, Silicon Valley Bank went under, much like an FTX, it went under, it's fine, it doesn't take anything else with it, fine. Of course, with FTX, it took a lot of things with it. BlockFi, Voyager, Genesis, a lot of companies got destroyed because FTX went under. And the fear is that similar kind of destruction could happen here. And so this argument that's being made is, hey, you know, why not just make uh, uh, have FDIC come in, bail everyone out, and give people the faith that uh, we are not going to end up having more bank runs. That's the idea, right? Uh, because after all, the last thing people want is the fear that, uh-oh, if it can happen to Silicon Valley Bank, the largest bank, the biggest bank failure now since 20 uh, or 2008, well, then it could happen uh, to, to any local bank, any regional bank. 
Now, when I uh, when I w- was at a dinner yesterday with uh, Kathy Wood, I asked her opinion on this because I, I one of the big concerns that I have is it's not just the contagion that uh, could spread to these other banks. It's also the fact that Silicon Valley Bank probably has to sell somewhere around $80 billion in available for sale securities and held to maturity securities. Both of those together, yikes, because here's the thing. If you have available for sale securities, that's one thing. That was only about maybe 10, 15% of the balance sheet of Silicon Valley Bank. You take a loss on those as they did. They took their $1.5 billion write down. They tried to raise some money, whatever. Uh, And then that way you raise some capital. But the real issue becomes, uh uh-oh, what happens when you take those held to maturity securities you weren't thinking about selling, but now FDIC comes in and starts liquidating those bonds? Well, you could see a total of somewhere around $80 billion mortgage-backed securities hit the market. Now, how does that affect you as an individual? Well, technically right now, it's creating so much fear that a lot of folks believe, "Uh uh-oh, well, that's it. The Federal Reserve's terminal rate is going to come down. Rate expectations are being cut. We went from 5.65 to somewhere around 5.29. Now, all of a sudden, we're pricing in a rate cut in December again. The bond market is literally pricing in a rate cut in December. So you saw this massive collapse of treasury yields yesterday. I think the 10-year treasury was down to the tune of uh, 21 bips, which is just insane. Yeah, 21.9 bips down back to 3.7. We were just at 4.1 a week and a half ago. So this insane drop in yields, which some folks are saying, oh, well, I mean, that's good for real estate, right? That's going to drive mortgage rates down. Not necessarily, because even though usually mortgage rates align with the 10-year treasury, uh, and and they're generally in alignment, so the 10-year goes up, mortgage rates go up, right? 10-year goes down, mortgage rates go down. But wait a minute, if all of a sudden you have $80 billion of commercial and and residential mortgage-backed securities that have to get dumped, you could actually see the value of those bonds plummet, which drives the yields up for mortgage-backed securities, which could potentially actually drive up uh, mortgage rates for for, uh, new home or commercial buyers or even variable interest rate loans. And that is called the widening of the spread between the 10-year and what mortgage rates actually are. Uh, Usually, they get to a point of alignment and there's a set spread. But if that spread widens, you could actually see higher real estate rates while you have lower mortgage rates because all of a sudden, people aren't wanting to touch commercial or uh, residential mortgage-backed securities anymore. Now, when I was at dinner with Kathy Wood, I asked her specifically, I go, isn't there a risk that uh, the largest eight banks, which the largest, I specifically asked about the largest eight, because as we've researched and talked about before, the largest eight banks go undergo the strongest and most stringent stress tests at the Federal Reserve, JP Morgan, City, Wells Fargo, Goldman, uh, Bank of America, right? These sorts of banks, uh, HSBC, they go under the most severe uh, and, and scrutinizing stress tests from the Federal Reserve. Uh, and so I asked Kathy, uh, I said, hey, is, is, is it not a risk that these larger banks potentially, even in the stress tests, don't actually have the appropriate write-downs made in the stress test for CMBS and, and MBS, mortgage-backed securities? And uh, Kathy had this interesting point. She said, the thing is, after the Great Recession and our Basel III financial requirements, especially for the biggest of the banks, the biggest banks right now only hold about 7% of commercial mortgage-backed securities. And we specifically focus in on commercial mortgage-backed securities because we're thinking vacant offices. Those are the ones getting hit the worst, right? That's really where you get the worst of the liquidation. So uh, she mentioned that uh, larger banks only hold about 7% of their balance sheet exposure 
or have about 7% exposure to commercial mortgage-backed securities, whereas smaller regional banks sit at about 25%. And one of the reasons she said there was such a difference was that because of the new requirements, maybe back in the past, all banks sat somewhere around 15%, let's say, mortgage-backed securities for commercial. Uh, but because of the new requirements on, on banks, uh, on the larger eight, the largest eight, you actually saw their commercial mortgage-backed security holdings go down to about 7% on average. Uh, whereas at the small regional banks, they picked up the slack and they went up to about 25%. So potentially, that contagion is worse for regional banks than it is for the big banks. So Kathy's not a believer that uh, this is this is really an element of, of widespread contagion or some sort of, sort of uh, systemic risk. Big believer that the financial system is still extremely sound. I agree with her. I just would not be associated with smaller banks right now, which I feel bad. I feel bad for other smaller banks. But look, when the writing is on the wall and there's smoke, there's usually fire. Uh, and so I would not recommend keeping uh, too much exposure now uh, to, to small banks. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't even want to rely on the FDIC limits. Now, I know a lot of people are like, look, FDIC is great. The reason you like FDIC is because they're going to come in, like at least you have an FDIC, unlike FTX, right? But if you have an FDIC, at least you can have some form of essentially bailout protection and get some of your money back eventually. Hopefully that's right away, but we're not sure if it's actually going to be right away. So the big question is, okay, how bad do things get? Now, Joe Biden did come out yesterday, and I thought this was really remarkable. Uh, Joe Biden came out yesterday and said, Kevin's courses on building your wealth are phenomenal, and you should definitely use the St. Paddy's coupon below before it expires next week. That's a link down below, and you get lifetime access to them. So if you take the programs and you're like, man, I really have a question for Kevin on this, I'll ask him in the live streams, or maybe he can make a lecture on this, which I do, or regularly add new lectures, you get lifetime access to all of that. Check that out down below. Um, but that's not actually what Biden said. What Biden actually said on the same day as we're having all these contagion fears is he says, I'm confident CPI will be in good shape next week. Now, I thought that was really interesting because Joe Biden doesn't typically come out and give us a spoiler of what the inflation report is going to look like on Tuesday. But Joe Biden literally just gave us a spoiler and said he's confident CPI will be in good shape next week. Now, <clears throat> That either it means one of two things. If he has no idea what the report is going to show, it could just be BS politics, right? But he's going to look like a, an idiot if it comes in hot next week, right? So I actually think it's more likely that Joe Biden has a little bit of a heads up in terms of what's going on in the CPI report. And the reason they might be okay essentially pre-leaking some of the CPI data to Biden is because if Biden can come out and say, hey, CPI is going to be good next week, that actually relaxes financial markets. It buys financial markets some time to stabilize. So it's actually a sort of a manipulation of markets, really. But as long as it's true, it's great. If we get rug pulled on Tuesday, well, psh, wow, okay, now you just can't trust anything the government says, which I specifically worded that line like that because you should be skeptical about, skeptical about everything the government says. Uh, but anyway, he is confident that CPI will be in good shape next week. That would be very embarrassing if he would he comes out and says that and he's wrong. So I don't think he would make that. I don't think he would make a statement if he didn't know. I think he I think he got a thumbs up, and the reason he got a thumbs up is to help the Fed and banking regulators maintain some financial stability, <clears throat> because the worst case scenario <clears throat> is not oh the president just leaked CPI data. <clears throat> That's not the worst case scenario. The real worst case scenario is a real financial crisis again. 
right? That will lead to insane numbers of job losses. The recession like we haven't seen for the last 14, 15 years. Donald Trump will end up being right. Remember what Donald Trump said when uh, during the 2020 election? He says, hey, if Biden gets in, you're going to have potentially a 1929-style recession. <laughs> Oops. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> so uh, that's that's potentially a positive, right? And at least, again, we have FDIC. I can't understate that point compared to uh, in, in crypto where when FTX collapsed, th there was no protection. The same is true for stable coins. There really, really isn't technically protection. Now, the idea is that maybe you get passed through FDIC insurance, maybe, but it's not actually you that is FDIC insured. It's technically supposed to be the deposits that are insured. But again, if Circle has $3.3 billion at Silicon Valley Bank and Trust, what are they going to get? $250,000 of FDIC insurance? What a joke. Again, a lot of people uh, and uh, Wall Street types clamoring for this idea that, oh my gosh, uh, we need to bail out. We need to bail out as soon as possible. Personally, I'm actually not the biggest believer that that's the right move right now. Uh, I think that uh, FDIC can can uh, prove that it could uh, support uh, its mission, which is protecting people up to $250,000. Unfortunately, somewhere around 95% of people uh, that have deposits at uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Trust have more than $250,000 of deposits. Uh, that sucks. Uh, and then on top of that, FDIC really only has about 1.7% of the liquidity in the banking system. So if you had a larger crisis, crisis in the banking system, you'd have uh, you'd have some pretty big problems. Uh, but, uh, and by the way, here's the screenshot of that uh, where, where Circle also shows you in the USDC Reserve Report uh, that they hold money not just at Silicon Valley Bank, but they also hold money at, look at that folks, Silvergate Bank. Now you might remember because I covered Silvergate Bank two days in a row about three days ago. I covered Silver uh, uh, Silvergate and, and basically the liquidation of Silvergate. Uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank took all, all the fun. Like, it took all the story and the excitement. Uh, I mean, it's so exciting. I started tweeting things like this. Uh, here's a picture of a Silicon Valley Bank credit card, and I tweeted, Today, I started paying all my bills through this new buy now, pay later firm. Sorry, <laughs> I have to make stupid jokes because it's fun. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, another thing, too, is I was looking at Robinhood, and they haven't replied yet, but I tweeted Robinhood. And I tweeted them this picture. I said, which banks are in your network? And I said, hey, I know your cash deposit sweeps are in these banks right here. Goldman, HSBC, Wells Fargo, Citibank, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it says that as of this, uh, January 31st, 2022, uh, we, we use these banks and we might change them. It does say we'll let you know in advance if we change them. But what if they forgot to change them? You know, what, what if all of a sudden some of the brokerages like a Wealthfront or an M1 Finance have, uh, um, you know, potentially some exposure uh, to these companies? We just, we just don't know. Uh, so anyway, here's just a screenshot example of uh, David Sachs freaking out. Where's Powell? Where's Yellen? Stop this crisis now. Announced that all depositors will be safe. Uh, place Silicon Valley Bank with a top four bank. Do this before Monday open or there will be contagion and crisis will spread. Uh, people in the uh, in the comments aren't very, very happy about that because when you get to the comments, you get people saying things like this. And and uh, just so you know, when I like things on Twitter, it's not because I actually like it. It's, it's just because I'm kind of curious. I want to get people's perspective. Look at this one. 
Just incredible. Billionaires and their corrupt cronies begging to get bailed out by taxpayers and hardworking savers from their own reckless, delusional stupidity after having dumped the worst companies in history on them. I mean, potentially a little extreme, but, but you know, it's, it is interesting. I mean, how quickly we're jumping into this idea of, uh-oh, let's, uh, let's quickly bail out, let's quickly bail out, right? Uh, and in the past, some of the venture capitalists that are now begging for bailouts were actually anti-bailouts during the COVID era. So you kind of have a little bit of that, um, that irony going on, uh, which uh, is, is kind of not surprising because, you know, it's, it's when you're affected, uh, you're, you're much more interested in uh, getting help than when somebody else is affected, right? Like you care about losing your own money and not so much about somebody else losing money, which is terrible. But, but I mean, quite frankly, it's the truth. Uh, you know, but then you have people even tweeting stuff like this. Here's somebody, Bob Elliott. He says, the U.S. banking system is built on the expectation that equity and bondholders accept bank economic risk and depositors, blah, blah, blah. Basically saying like, hey, man, like this is bad. Like people, people should, you know, do really good due diligence. And the banking system is set up under the basis that people do good due diligence of, of banks. And that's what makes the whole system work. And he literally said that. He, he says uh, the word here. That uh, financial investors in banks do the necessary diligence to quantify the bank risk. I, I, I wrote, lost you at diligence, because I actually don't think most people on Wall Street do a lot of actual fundamental analysis. There's a reason why in our course member live streams, almost on a daily basis, I do fundamental analysis with everyone, because it, to me, it's a lost art. In fact, when, uh, when I had dinner with Kathy, uh, Kathy Wood, one of the things she mentioned was, how frustrated she was that in 2015, she went to an ETF conference and she's looking around like, where are all the Bloomberg terminals? Where are all the researchers? And she's right. Most people on Wall Street aren't actually doing real fundamental due diligence. <laughs> it's, it seems like it's more of a marketing game than it is one of actual due diligence. Uh, so uh, I, I thought that was very interesting. But, but this is the kind of stuff that you're seeing uh, in sort of the debates that you're seeing uh, online at the same time as you have, uh, uh, you know, the, the insiders essentially cashing out of their shares. And it's really scary. But uh, in my opinion, and I've reiterated this a few times now, uh, but uh, yesterday I mentioned, uh, gosh, at this point, probably about 13 hours ago, I mentioned, no, sorry, 25 hours ago, I mentioned that uh, this collapse, the near collapse yesterday morning, the now collapse, in my opinion, increases the, the likelihood of not just a 25 BP hike, but I think there's a greater percent chance that as long as CPI comes in good, we could be seeing a 0% hike uh, as a greater percent chance than, uh, than, than a 50 BP hike. That's my theory. Uh, that, that is definitely my theory. Someone here says DD was never an art. Uh, I think due diligence is absolutely an art. Uh, there, uh, fun, fundamental analysis uh, generally is based on assumptions, and, uh, and, and assumptions are, uh, are, are different for everybody, right? And so when you have something that's different for everybody, they really are. It really is an art. Uh, and so that's important to remember is, is that when, when one person d looks at a discounted cash flow uh, state, uh, you know, analysis, uh, your assumptions going into that are going to be vastly different than somebody else's. What are you using for OPEX? Is your operating leverage increasing or decreasing? What's your revenue growth? What's your discount rate? Uh, I, I mean, there, there is no one-size-fits-all way to actually do uh, due diligence. And I think that's where most people just don't do any diligence, which is quite unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> somebody here says is asking about my startup. Uh, if house hack goes to $2 billion as a market cap, will you get a house hack tattoo? 
Sure. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. Uh, anyway, so really, really crazy uh, stuff here with, with the Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, hopefully on Monday, the contagion is limited. The last thing we want to hear on Monday is that other banks are starting to have issues. But let me be very clear, okay? And I'm not trying to spread fear. I am trying to be a business person providing what I believe is a reasonable suggestion. I would not have any of my money with a smaller bank right now. I would have all of my money in a tier one bank or in T-bills. That's it. T-bills, tier one bank, that's it. All right. So that gives us a little bit of color here on uh, the Silicon Valley Bank. Now let's go ahead. Uh, we've got some other things to cover. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about this, but I don't have... How am I going to do this? Okay, give me a second here, uh, because this is actually really interesting. <laughs> It'll take me about 30 seconds here to pull this up. Oh, can I pull that up over here? It's a lot faster when I'm in my studio, but I can't keep complaining about not being in my studio when I'm traveling. <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, all right, let me get to the pot. There's a little quick video I want to play, but also my headphones aren't working today. Oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah, here we go. One second. All right, here it is. Okay, so I'm going to plug this in, and let's see. Let's go ahead and start with this, and uh, then we're going to go into uh, some of uh, the commentary that I've got on. Uh, uh, this is going to be about Elon Musk and uh, China. It's pretty remarkable because, uh, you know, something that's happening with China, I think if you're an investor, really, and in, in even remotely considering China as an investment, you want to pay attention to this because it, it shows you that uh, China is really transformed. It's not, not so dare I say, the, the way it used to be. <laughs> and uh, there's a really good example here that we'll go through uh, to talk about uh, exactly that. And it just might take me another second to get that ready. Okay, that looks good. That looks good. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay, here we go. Now we got to talk China. What was just said about Elon Musk's relation to China after what was just said about Elon Musk's relation to China? Let's take a look and comment on, do we think that's potentially true? Then let's move into how is China actually competing with the United States and is it something that we should be concerned about? Let's go ahead and get started with this clip. Now this clip is a Twitter clip, and uh, it is uh, a it's it's uh, <laughs> uh, it's Steve Bannon, whom Elon Musk replied to this uh, comment here by him and suggested, "Oh, I used to think Steve Bannon was a smart but evil person. Now I think he's just evil, essentially, right?" So let's go ahead and jump into uh, what Steve Bannon says right here when the question is asked. Should Elon Musk uh, get into maybe helping bail out Silicon Valley Bank or what is Elon Musk's exposure? 
on the world stage and how does it relate to China? Ready for this? Here we go. What would, would you think about that? If, I, mean, that I think until Elon Musk starts letting back on the most, uh, the true anti-CCP people that he keeps blocked off there, myself included, not that I want to really? go on there. Oh yeah, no, no, no. He's owned, he's owned by the Chinese Communist Party. What are you talking about? Tesla, his only sense, the only thing of real value is Tesla. He, he mar uses it for margin loans, he sells the stock. The Shanghai joint venture is 100% controlled by the CCP. This is, why, this is why he never goes after the CCP. This is why he always backs off. This is when they had the, the protest, they had the protest about the lockdowns of COVID. He, he will not do it. Elon Musk is a total and complete phony. He is in bed in a business party. He's done some good stuff of letting stuff out. Uh, you know, with Taibbi and others, it's fine. But he is owned, lock, stock, and barrel by the Chinese Communist Party, and he acts like it. The, right? the, there was a story recently that they warned him to stop talking about lab leak. 100%. He's got, and, and he, I think there was a They wanted him to take down the tweets he did the first right. time. Now, he didn't take them down, but you notice he didn't have any more up there after that. And I wonder if he said, okay, I, I won't tweet more about it. But here's, here's the issue I see with the CCP in the United States, and if the United States falters, if this fourth By the way, the CCP, Chinese companies are all in this, this, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, yeah. That's another thing they're already talking about. We think maybe up to a third of those, those innovative companies may be CCP. All right, there you have it. Well, so what do we think about that? Well, Elon Musk uh, is, is to some degree not wrong in that he wants to expand his manufacturing in China as much as possible. In fact, he'd like to double the size of Giga Shanghai. Is it potentially true then that Elon Musk is uninterested in criticizing China? Yes. However, China has the equal position opposite but equal. China, through this, uh, they've, they've got multiple propaganda newspapers, but regularly talks up how Elon Musk is actually an example of the type of entrepreneur that they want to encourage in China. China wants to encourage more Elon Musk-style folks in China. So is it possible that Elon Musk doesn't want to criticize China? Absolutely, because ultimately he'd like to expand Giga Shanghai. It's the most profitable factory Tesla has right now. Would it make sense for in the future, potentially, Elon Musk to have more factories in China? Yes. Is it likely? Maybe not soon, because right now it seems like more of a preference is being put on com uh, countries like uh, uh, Mexico because of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and North American production, more incentivized but potentially also India and Taiwan in the future, or uh, Vietnam, Indonesia, these, uh, these countries potentially uh, being better opportunities and a, a tool for diversifying away from China, especially in the time where uh, the U.S. government is extremely critical of China, but not just critical of China, but also potentially forcing their hand in terms of innovation. And now this is something that I think is very interesting. Look at this, okay? This is a piece by the Foreign Affairs. Now, this is a fantastic magazine, by the way. And what they talk about, I'm going to sum up some of it here because it's quite long. But what they talk about is how back when uh, Apple started making iPhones in China, China was basically known for super cheap labor. Uh, and they, they really were known more for producing toys like Barbies or Legos or Mattel toys or whatever than they were actually known for height technological highly technologically advanced processes right because it's not just like think about the iPhone it's not just a matter of making the chips it's also making sure the chips are assembled 
correctly together, but then also testing the chips. See, I think a lot of people forget that. Look, China just stole uh, patented technology and, and trade secrets. These are U.S. trade secrets uh, and, uh, or U.S.-related trade secrets from ASML to create advanced lithography mas machines so that China can create their own 3-millimeter chips or nanometer chips, rather, uh, and, uh, and, and create advanced chips that NVIDIA and AMD and the U.S. government are already making, Taiwan semiconductors, right? The problem is it's not just as easy as having the machine. If you bought a three nanometer chip making machine and set it up, you would be no closer to being able to make chips as you were before having that machine. Because it's not just a matter of plugging it in and running it. It's actually not only having the supplier contacts, but once you run the machine, actually being able to assemble what you're putting together and then checking to see if it works. The checking part, the rigorous checking is something that is a very intense process that could take sometimes 50 to 100 additional steps. So the machine is just one cog in the wheel. And China has to re basically innovate to come up with all of those processes to make sure they're actually able to create quality products. Uh, and the United States government is trying to prevent them from getting their hands on these sort of advanced chip-making technologies. But what's really fascinating is China, back in the day, used to be really not that great at solar panel production. Uh, and much like back when they just started making the iPhone, uh, they weren't that great at engineering. But now all of a sudden they're getting into quantum computing. They're getting into artificial intelligence. You have quantum computers that potentially can now start hacking into, uh, I think it's uh, SHA-256 encryption, which is very important for Cryptography, yes, that means crypto, password protection, right? Uh, but not only that, take a look at this. When China was forced, and this is by the foreign affairs here, when China was forced to actually innovate rather than uh, solely become a producer uh, for goods for America, what ended up happening? Well, not only did they come up with companies like TikTok, which are taking away a lot of user viewership from companies like Facebook, but they also dominated the solar supply chain. Listen to this paragraph right here. In 2010, China's state council, the central government's executive branch, designated solar power generation as a strategic emerging business. So in other words, a very important business, triggering a cascade of government subsidies and business creation, much of it aimed at expanding manufacturing capacity. In the process, Chinese firms learned the basics of solar photovoltaics and began to improve on existing methods. Today, Chinese firms dominate almost every single segment of the solar value chain, from processing polysilicon used in solar cells to assembling solar panels. But not only do they dominate in actually making solar panels now, listen to this, they have also advanced the technology itself. Chinese solar panels are not only the cheapest on the market, they are also the most efficient. The breathtaking decline in solar costs over the past decade has been driven by manufacturing innovations in China. Now, not only do you have these solar innovations, but you've got the largest battery manufacturer in the world, CATL, supplying a ton of batteries to companies like Tesla. In fact, CATL uh, is probably the reason why Tesla all of a sudden is able to sell power walls on their website. And people can now, without buying a whole solar system, buy home battery backup systems directly from Tesla, Tesla.com.
By And listen to this. By showering subsidies on the newcomers, the Chinese government has encouraged many firms to enter the field, and it has provoked greater entrepreneurial risk-taking, creating a brutally competitive industry in which the strong muscled out the weak. As a result, Chinese firms today dominate the strategic industry that the rest of the world depends on, solar panels. The approach was promoting manufacturing to the point of excess capacity, which is in sharp contrast to economic orthodoxy in much of the West. In other words, let's throw so much money at the problem that even if you have a bunch of businesses fail, you're going to get to excess capacity and massively bring the cost down, and now we'll be dominant in that space. Well, this same thing that happened with China for chips is, or, or for solar panels and batteries to some extent is now happening with China for chips. So you do not want to count out China. Now, there are problems with China. China, for example, is starting to spread its influence more, right? They've got their eyes on the Middle East. Ukraine-Russia war is showing them that they're trying to remain neutral while potentially supplying weapons to Russia because, after all, if the U.S. can supply weapons to, to Ukraine, why can't China support its uh, manufacturing industry, its military-industrial complex, and supply weapons to Russia on the other side, just like what North Korea is doing? You're kind of creating these almost World War III-style axes, right? The U.S., uh, Western Europe, Ukraine on the other side, Iran, North Korea, China, uh, and, uh, and, and Russia. It's kind of scary. Now, there's this idea that these, these subsidy races might end up being won by China, that there will be a limit to how much political willpower we will have in the United States and in the Eurozone to actually support chip making in the chips industry, whereas China... Guess what Xi Jinping has been saying? While at the same time, he has been very critical of Joe Biden, and Wall Street Journal just had a big piece on how uh, Joe Biden was directly rebuked by Xi Jinping. Well, that sort of criticism is happening, and Xi is making it very clear that it almost feels as though uh, the the West is sort of uniting and trying to fight against uh, China. What else are they saying at the same time? Well, they're coming out and saying, hey, you know what? We are going to focus on capitalism. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Xi Jinping's speech at the end of last year was focused on, look, we still love socialism, but we really like capitalism. Don't worry, we like socialism, but when capitalism's good. It's kind of like, I've made this analogy before, so sorry to sound redundant, but I feel like they've kind of like, they're like, oh, what's this white powder? Oh, that's cocaine. Oh, I want some more of that, <laughs> right? <laughs> so now you have China becoming this big player in not only the Middle East, but also potentially India, which is where United States companies are trying to go. But what if China's a big player over there now as well? So you're seeing this expansion while at the same time tensions are increasing between the U.S. and China. You're seeing China not only shower their manufacturing industry with more, but you're seeing this power struggle uh, expand. And the TikTok bill doesn't help. We just introduced a bill in Congress that would potentially force the sale of TikTok so that way we could keep data here in America rather than potentially have our personal contacts and our data go over to Chinese uh, servers. Uh, uh, American TikTok data has already been found on Asian servers in Asia. Somebody can walk in, take the hard drive. I mean, obviously, hopefully they're encrypted, but who knows if they actually are. But anyway, uh, China selling weapons to Russia is now widely seen as this sort of quote-unquote 
we don't give a damn attitude, like Biden ain't the boss of, uh, the boss of us, right? Uh, you've got really this uh, Xi Jinping argument that the U.S. is trying to contain China and that it's not fair. And as a result, they're almost sort of lashing out to expand even faster. I mean, think about it. The U.S. Chips Act restricts Taiwan semiconductors from selling advanced uh, chips to China. ASML is restricted from selling advanced chip-making machines to China. They can only sell the old crap. That's the last generation stuff. The U.S. visiting Taiwan doesn't help, and now potentially Taiwanese uh, uh, executive, well, dare I say executives, Taiwanese officials are going to come to America to meet with Kevin McCarthy, much like Nancy Pelosi met with them uh, in, uh, in August. The U.S. is also rejecting China's 12-point peace plan for the Russia-Ukraine disaster. We've gone through that peace plan. It's actually somewhat reasonable. Like, China is trying to come up with a negotiated solution. Uh, and at least they're trying to negotiate. I have to give China credit for that. At least they're trying, whether it's an earnest or not. At least it seems like they're trying. At the same time, China's ramping up their military, especially in the South China Sea. And you're getting more and more islands that are becoming weaponized uh, by China, whether that's with uh, surface-to-air missile defense units or sort of radio towers that you're seeing built up. I mean, these are propping up all over uh, in the South China Sea, and it's making people more and more nervous. Uh, and so really what you have is potentially this big psychological warfare where where the U.S. is kind of getting more and more nervous about China, especially since they've got three to four times our population. You know, it doesn't take their per capita income going up that much for us to have this pivot point where China is all of a sudden larger than the United States on, a, on an economic basis. And then you wonder, what does that mean for the dollar in the future? There are a lot of things to consider. But look, is it unreasonable to say that, oh, Elon Musk is somehow like a you know China shill and he doesn't criticize China? Um, maybe not. But then again, does it make sense that corporations are kind of like, look, we don't want to get in the politics. We just want to manufacture our goods and provide our services. And we want to do that for as many people as possible. So as businesses, we can make more money. It's totally fair. So do I think uh, Elon, for example, is bought out, as Bannon says, by China? No. Do I think it makes sense to be friendly with China when they have the power to potentially subsidize your manufacturing way more than the United States does? Again, remember, we have gridlock in America. What do you have in China? Not gridlock, <laughs> right? Vastly different government system. So my big takeaway of all of this is you can't bet against China right now. I know there are always World War III fears. I think that's relatively unlikely. Uh, but then again, it could be wrong about this. Obviously, we want to keep paying attention to it. But this foreign affairs piece on China and, and the solar panels really woke me up to this idea that, oh my gosh, they have an unlimited and uncanny ability that if they want to be really good at something, they can throw all the money in the world at it. We can't do that in America. And we have fewer people. So we have many disadvantages compared to China. And I actually think you're seeing a little bit of a lash out in the United States and, and these sort of sanctions and restrictions on China are actually just forcing China to get better and stronger. So we're shooting ourselves in the foot. It's like we're trying to like make ourselves feel good now, but we're punishing ourselves in the future. So it's not great, but it's definitely going to be something we've got to pay attention to. So that's my take on China. Okay, next topic we've got to cover is <laughs> two more. A lot, lot of Elon today. All right, next one I want to cover is 
what Elon said about uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Let me pull that up really quick so we have it handy. And then we'll also talk about my response to it. Hope you all having a wonderful uh, Saturday morning so far. It's going to be fun. Okay, here we go. Alright. It's official. Elon Musk has suggested buying out Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. We need to talk about this because I myself have looked into starting a bank. Now, that's not like a spoiler alert. I've been doing that since about 2019 and working with uh, attorneys and, and regulators on the idea of, in the future, starting a bank. Uh, right now, I have no intentions of starting a bank, but I've always learned and studied that the easiest way to start a bank is to not start a bank. It is to buy a bank. Consider what SoFi did. They bought a bank, and now SoFi has a banking charter. Banking charters are extremely difficult to come by. Not only do you need a lot of cash, I'm talking around potentially up to $500 million in cash just to get a banking charter. And then you're waiting two or three years depending on where you want to get the banking charter. Utah seems to be the best place to go. Anyway, very, very difficult. And this is why one of the easiest ways to actually get a banking charter is to acquire a bank. Take a look at this little hint that we got yesterday right here. On screen now, you're going to see a tweet that says, I think Twitter should buy Silicon Valley Bank and become a digital bank. Elon Musk replies, I'm open to the idea. Now, if you are a Tesla shareholder, that idea should make you nervous because Twitter don't have money to do this. They are sinking in debt. Yes, maybe maybe they will go EBITDA profitable in the second quarter. Maybe they'll even become actual cash profitable, which is different because depreciation is you know a tax write-off, right? But maybe they'll actually become cash profitable, like taxably profitable this year. That's the hope. Elon Musk seems optimistic about that, but advertising revenues are still down uh, to, to 40% of what they were last year. This is a massive decline in advertising revenues. And so it's better than the 90% decline that it seemed like we had right after he took over in November uh, and October. But anyway, a banking license and uh, acquiring Silicon Valley Bank would probably be very uh, costly. And unfortunately, Twitter doesn't have the cash to do that. So there is a risk that Elon Musk would have to sell Tesla shares in order to buy this bank. Now, what is the actual residual value of this bank? Well, that's the real question. See, I replied, oh, no way. Look at that. I have 420 likes. That's like perfect timing. 420 likes on my reply. What an opportunity, I said. Two to three years to get a banking charter otherwise. Just make sure you go through those toxic assets with a fine-tooth comb. So this is actually, in my opinion, very critically important. You have to ask yourself, if you're going to buy Silicon Valley Bank, how toxic are the assets that are there? That is very scary. Because let's say, let's say you buy a bank. I'm going to make this math easy, okay? Let's say you buy a bank for, uh, oh, I don't know, 
a billion dollars. Okay, what's well, what's the market cap of this sucker right now? It's probably much less. You know, then we can actually work with that number. So if I look at uh, SVB stock, uh, this thing's sitting at about six point two billion dollars right now. Okay, well, let's say you were able to buy them just to make math easy for five billion dollars. First of all, that's a lot of Tesla shares you'd have to sell, right? But let's do some quick math. So let's say you want to buy this company for $5 billion, and it might end up being a lot less because you might lose a lot of the customers. That's actually probably your biggest risk factor uh, in addition to the assets. So uh, let's draw this out and see what that looks like. Okay, so if you buy, there we go. Okay, pull this up. Come on. All right, here we go. So if you buy a bank for $5 billion, so you spend $5 billion on it, your goal is to get assets and IP. IP is pretty important, but Silicon Valley Bank might not have a lot of IP left. Now, obviously, Elon Musk has priorities or reasons why potentially buying a bank would be interesting. He's alluded to the idea of creating the X app, which would be known as the Everything app. And the X app would basically be a, potentially this way where you can uh, deposit money, transfer money, uh, you know, receive interest on your money, uh, pull margin loans, credit lines, whatever all potentially built in either through the X app or through Twitter. Uh, you could send payments through Twitter potentially. You could buy things on Twitter using the cash you already have available in your Twitter bank app, uh, whether it's the X app or the Twitter app. These are all things Elon Musk has suggested before. It's not a terrible idea. It's sort of like trying to compete with the, the PayPal, which he's helped, which he helped co-found. Uh, so he has a little bit of experience in banking. But also, uh, you know, you're competing with the Venmo, the Zelle, the FedNow system, the Fed's coming out with. So you have a lot of uh, these, you have a big set of competition, but you also do have a lot of users on Twitter. So it's an interesting idea. But anyway, let's say you spend $5 billion acquiring a bank. Well, what if you're acquiring this bank for $5 billion and you go into the deal thinking you're getting $4 billion of leftover assets and maybe you're getting $1 billion of intellectual property? Honestly, it's probably the opposite right now. You probably only have $1 billion of actual assets uh, and, uh, and $4 billion of IP. Let's run with that. So, well, what happens if you spend $5 billion on this bank and you then go through these assets and you find out, uh-oh, those five or that one billion dollars of assets is actually only worth 0.1 billion dollars. So it's only worth one tenth of what you thought it was worth. Well, that's going to be a little poopsie doopsie because all of a sudden you've now lost another 900 million dollars in assets you thought you had, which potentially then also means selling more Tesla stock because it means you thought you had more money than you really did. So Elon buying another business at this point is the last thing that Tesla shareholders want to hear about, especially since Elon Musk suggested and, and almost nearly promised that he was not going to sell any more Tesla stock in 2023. Elon starting to sell again would be a complete cluster F for the stock. This is the worst time for Elon Musk to potentially be selling again. It would be very bad. Uh, but anyway, uh, on top of that, what is IP worth? Well, IP, intellectual property, is really the brand of Silicon Valley Bank. Well, I think that brand is basically dead. But not only with IP do you actually get the brand, but you also get the customer base, which is a type of asset. It's a little different than intellectual property, but it's, it's a customer base. You could call it that. We'll, we'll lump it under there for this purpose. So you get a customer base. But the problem with a customer base is what motivation do customers have to stay with you or come back to you once they've left?
what if all the customers leave to JP Morgan and some of these other or, or other regional banks or hopefully not, hopefully larger banks, but other banks start saying, hey, you know what, we'll just give you the line of credit you had at uh, you know Silicon Valley Bank and uh, we'll help you with some loose lending or whatever. Well, then potentially you don't need Silicon Valley Bank. And once loss left, why would you come back? This is a risk for Elon because if his idea is, oh, let's create a bank so we can let people do margin loans or get lines of credit or whatever, which would be the way that you would actually retain your customer base by giving them good lending options. Well, what do you run into if you start lending people money? Well, now you're running into even more risk and even more risk that you have to sell more Tesla stock. Because think about it. Not only do you have a toxic asset risk, right? But then you have the acquisition costs of the business. So this hurts Tesla stock. The first one hurts Tesla stock. The acquisition uh, cost hurts Tesla stock. But then if you potentially have losses because of lending you're doing as a bank, well, then that also hurts Tesla stock. So once again, this idea, while it would be a wonderful opportunity for him to get into a banking charter, would be another massive slap in the face to Tesla investors. It would be a horrible thing for Tesla investors. And I want to be very clear about this. Anybody who suggests that Elon Musk's uh, sales of Tesla stock didn't actually really affect uh, Tesla stock is out of their mind. Absolutely out of their mind. Because I'll give you some examples. So last year, we know, one sec. Last year, we know that uh, $15 billion of uh, retail money was injected into Tesla stock, but Elon sold $24 billion and the stock tanked to about $100 per share. Much of that was created, in my opinion, by the trend that Elon Musk's sales forced, which made it an easy stock to short and all of a sudden the darn thing plummets, right? But not only that, what happens? Well, at the beginning of this year, you had about $13 billion of net retail inflows into Tesla stock. And what did that do to the stock? It made the stock go from $100-ish to where it sits now, around $170. Pretty large move. So those net retail buys are very, very important. Uh, so think about that. Uh, you have a potential scenario where, yes, if Elon wants to acquire a bank, during a banking crisis could potentially be a phenomenal time to do that. But the more Elon is interested in acquiring a bank, the more pain you are recreating for Tesla stock. I hate to say it, but Elon's piggy bank for all of his projects is Tesla stock. So this is a potential hell for Tesla stock. Potentially really cool if Elon also had a bank. I mean, it's cool. And it sort of goes towards the narrative of him wanting to create the X app and do what he's been trying to achieve. But uh, yeah, grand scheme of things, very bad, very potentially bad for Tesla stock. Uh, let's see, how do we make the bank takeover work? Well, you need a lot of money. You know, you need to you need to buy the toxic assets for a discounted value, and you need to buy the IP of the company for a um, a, a discounted value. So uh, they those are very very important. Uh, yes, in the past he sort of suggested that as well. A test someone here says Tesla will go to seventy dollars. Uh, Elon buys it. Kevin runs it. Now, I don't know that I could honestly work for anyone else. And and I mean I appreciate you saying that. I don't think Elon would ever hire me. Uh, but um, 
Yeah, I think it's very interesting. We need House Hack to transfer everything to Elon Bank. No, you know what House? You know what the end game is? Is uh, House Hack ends up creating its own bank in the future, not even for other people, just to do its own loans. End game. <laughs> so uh, the 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 plans that we let me just be so clear. The plans that we have for House Hack are are plans that have just never existed before. And they're ones that I'm so confident in that I'm I'm willing to send myself into bankruptcy and poverty in in, in doing everything that I can to make sure that uh, that that house hack uh, succeeds because I have I have such uh, such exciting visions for it. It's it's very very exciting to me. All right, now we have uh, let's see here. <laughs> it's funny you say has all house hack money been moved out of small banks. So you know what's actually really remarkable about this is uh, about a month ago, I got nervous about small banks. We were banking with a community bank, and uh, at the beginning of February, I said, I do not like financial institutions in a recession. Let's move all of our money that's not in treasuries to JP Morgan. And so for about a month now, all of our money at Househack, uh, most of our money, has been sitting, uh, well, either in treasuries, but then from like just cash point of view, uh, somewhere around 95% of it has already been sitting at JPM. So the money's already at JP Morgan. Like I had, I don't know if it, if it was just like, like the world sent this like energy beam to me. I don't really believe in that stuff. Okay, I think that it, sometimes that sounds a little loony. I'm just saying like, I don't know if that happened and something's like, get your money out of those small banks a month ago and I already made that move. Or it was just sort of like rationalizing like, I don't like banks in a recession. Let me make sure all of our house hack money is protected as much as possible. And then we ended up moving to JP Morgan. So we actually already did that a month ago because there was so much of that banking risk. Uh, and, and we didn't even think about Silicon Valley Bank or even Silvergate at that point. Uh, and we also we had another about $290,000 left over at the community bank. That's because we got some uh, uh, some additional wires that came in. And so I've already uh, initiated that wire and uh, that's uh, that either already showed up or it's showing up uh, Monday morning. So, But the wire's already been processed. So we, we basically have negligible exposure to, to uh, smaller regional banks. So in other words, I am putting my money where my mouth is and I've actually already been doing that <laughs> um, conveniently knock on wood, that we kind of are able to have that kind of foresight in the future as well. But that foresight ended up being very, very convenient, I think. Uh, not that at any means we were at risk and, and have any exposure to Silicon Valley Bank. We don't, but I think it's very interesting. Uh, and, and I don't know that I would trust, uh, you know, Elon taking over the bank. <laughs> because if Elon's bank had problems and you're like, oh, well, Elon will bail me out, uh, that just means him selling even more Tesla stock. <laughs> Ay, 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 ay. It's, uh, it's uh, honestly, it, it's, it sounds terrible to say, but like these times, as scary as they are and as painful as they are, because everybody's getting hurt. If you're involved in stocks, you know, bonds, uh, if you're dealing with the bank, everybody gets hurt, right? It's kind of exciting though, because it's like, whoa, like there's a lot of stuff happening. Like this is, we're going to remember this. For the rest of our lives, these these sorts of things. That's so pretty remarkable. All right, next. <laughs> what about companies like M1 Finance? That's you know, it's a good question. It depends what they sweep to, right? So let's Google M1 M1 Finance sweep 
banks. Would we invest in homes in Europe? In the future, if our model works really well. So, M1 Finance, M1 Finance, mm, Apex. They use Apex. Uh, but that's for, I didn't know they used that for, that's for SIPC, isn't it? I don't know if they actually get FDIC through that. <coughs> because Apex is a broker. I don't know uh, which banks they use. Oh, here we go. I think I found them. What are smart transfers? Here we go. Checking. Uh, let's see here. If I just search bank, they have a whole page on smart transfers. Bank. Uh, Lincoln Savings. Uh, and B2 Bank. So M1 Spend uh, is Lincoln Savings and B2 Bank. I mean, I don't even know what those are. B2 Bank, market cap. B2 Bank, I have no idea. I don't, I've never even heard of it. B2 Bank and Lincoln, B2 Bank, but that's something to consider. B2 Bank is a full-service bank in northern Minnesota. Well, I wonder how many assets they have. Let's see what size they are. Oh, that's actually really interesting. Because, yeah, like, what if M1 Finance is... Uh, no, I don't have... I can't get financials. They stopped... I don't know if they went private in 2017, but they stopped reporting. Here's bankingstrategist.com. Commercial banks by asset size. Here it is. B2 Bank, 41 total assets. Are these in billions? Commercial banks, less than 100 million in total assets. Oh. Well, I don't know how accurate this website is, but it says data from Q4 2022 FDIC reports shows B2 Bank has around $41 million. That's really low. Dude, Mission Bank, which is the bank we had some money at in California, had $186 million. B2 Bank is one-fourth the size. Oh, wow, of even Mission out here. That's crazy. What about Lincoln? Lincoln, Link, is it Lincoln Community Bank or what was it? Hold on a second. Lincoln, 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 Lincoln. Lincoln Savings Bank. That's what it's called. Lincoln. There's so many Lincolns. Bank of Lincoln. Bank of Lincoln. Uh, Bank of Lincoln. Lincoln. Savings Bank. There. 1.8 billion. Okay, so that one's bigger. That's interesting. Wow. That's really fascinating. That's something to keep in mind on. Hmm. I mean, I don't know that I would. I mean, I suppose. I mean, what what about Wealthfront, right? Wealthfront. FDIC. Let's see here. 
Let's see what banks they use really quickly. Wealth front, cash account, FDIC, 250K, program banks. Swept into program banks. Well, what are your program banks? F uh, program banks. Hmm. Oh, no, here we go. Now they've updated it to 2 million in FDIC. Okay, but what are the banks? Banks, 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 banks. They don't list them for you. Well, that's a bummer. I mean, I'm sure it's somewhere, but it would be interesting to know. Because, see, it wouldn't surprise me if some of these smaller banks, you know, all these sweep companies, end up uh, being small regional banks. Participating banks. Yeah, which ones are they? Financial benefits, how the program works, withdrawals, evidence of ownership, participating banks. Okay, they maintain a participating bank list for the cash sweep program. Where? Does anybody know? Do I think Chime Bank is in danger? Digital online bank? I've never even heard of it. But let me just type it into that list. Chime. No, that one doesn't even show up. Are they actually a bank? Uh, Wealthfront participating banks sweep. Weeble doesn't have banks associated with it. Got it. I got the Wealthfront list. And then Chime. Yeah, Chime is not a bank. So they also use different banks. I would get my money out of all of these startups, man, because you don't know what bank they're putting this stuff in. That's the problem. Bank, oh, wait, here. Banking services provided by the Bancor Bank or Stride Bank. <laughs> okay. I mean, Bancor is a big one. But what the hell is Stride? Stride's got about 2.7 bill. Stride Bank National Association. You see what I mean? That's, that's Chime. Okay, yeah, and then here, here are the uh, Wealthfront participating banks. So they have some big ones like Citibank and HSBC, but then they literally have small ones like Peacock, P, no, Peapack Gladstone Bank. What the hell? <laughs> That's scary. Ally? I don't know. Well, SoFi is its own bank. So, so SoFi is SoFi, right? Ally, I think, is its own bank as well. Yeah, because they're public. I wonder how their stock did. Uh, Ally, yeah, they fell 5% yesterday. They were down, they're about a $7 billion company. That's really interesting. Acorns is not a bank either. Acorns is a ripoff, man. I type into YouTube, meet Kevin Acorns. I, I don't know. They drive me nuts. Acorns Bank. Acorns is not a bank. Lincoln Savings. So they also use Lincoln. No, no, no. But then it says, okay, or NBKC Bank. When they do that or, I think it's because they want to mislead you. I mean, I hate saying this, but I think they're trying to mislead you into thinking it's the big one. But then it's the or is kind of like 
oh, it's actually the small one. <laughs> Good lord. Good lordy. You know, well, let's do a little short segment on that. Uh, and then... Um, and then I think we'll we'll call it a, a, a day there. So let's do a short segment there. One second. Hey everyone, me Kevin here, coming to you from my Airbnb in Florida that I had to crash in last night. Uh, the most important warning that I have for you in this whole banking crisis phenomenon is be careful of smaller banks, but also folks, the big fintechs that you've become so familiar with. Many of you have asked me, hey Kevin, what about companies like Chime, Wealthfront, M1 Finance, Robinhood? And the reality is, a lot of these companies will use the deposits that you have, the cash deposits that you have with them, and offer you yields. But these are not actually banks. In fact, if you look at a lot of these companies, like for example, you go to acorns.com, one of the very first things you see at the top uh, in this super fine print is, Acorns is not a bank. That's because in order for you to be a bank, you have to have a banking charter. But they want you to get yield on your cash deposited with them, right? So how do they do that? You deposit cash into the app. They promise you, let's say, 4% interest or 5% at Wealthfront or whatever it is, but they're not a bank. So what they do is they take that money and they go deposit it into small regional banks that can offer a higher yield, and then they take a cut. So let's say uh, a small regional bank will say, hey, Wealthfront, we'll give you 5.25%. If you put all your customer money with us and uh, and then Wealthfront says, okay, uh, that's great. We'll put a bunch of deposits in with you. Wealthfront takes 5.25%, let's say, and then offers you 5%. Wealthfront gets to take that 25-bit spread. Or maybe they even split that with the bank, you know, half for Wealthfront, half for the bank. But the point is, when you're using fintech apps, you should be astutely aware as to what bank is actually backing the cash that you have with those apps. Consider, for example, Acorns is not a bank. Acorns Visa debit cards are issued by Lincoln Savings Bank. Okay, that sounds great, right? Lincoln Savings Bank has you know, a, a, a reputation. In fact, if you go to bankingstrategist.com, you could type in Lincoln Savings Bank, and you'll see this is a bank that has about $1.8 billion dollars of assets under management. It's not a huge bank, it's a smaller bank, but $1.8 billion is a pretty big bank, right? But then right after that it says, or NBKC Bank. And usually when I hear or, it's because you're getting the or. <laughs> uh, NBKC Bank is about half the size of Lincoln Financial. Barely has a billion dollars of assets under management. So how do we know that NBKC Bank, a bank out of Kansas that I've never heard of before, actually has your Acorns money safe? Now again, up to $250,000, you should have FDIC insurance, but you still don't necessarily want to go through that crap, right? So it's a danger that I would consider. 
The same is true uh, for potential banking stress at actual banks, whether that's like an Ally or a SoFi. But even look, for example, at M1 Finance. M1 Finance, for example, if you go to uh, their fine print, you'll see they also use Lincoln Savings Bank, which we just talked about. But then they also use B2 Bank for people's deposits. Okay, well, what the heck is B2 Bank? Well, when you look at bankingstrategist.com, it says B2 Bank only has $41 million under management. It is a bank out of Minnesota, or that might be Montana. Uh, Montana, no, it is Minnesota. A bank out of Minnesota that only has $41 million under management. So then that makes you wonder, wait a minute, what about the other fintechs? And there are a lot of them. And you have to look, the ones that don't actually have a banking charter, go to their front page. They have to say it on their front page. For example, go to Chime.com. If you type in Chime.com, what do you get? You get Chime. The first thing, you go to Chime.com and then type in Command F or press Command F on your keyboard and type in bank. And then what's the first thing you're going to see? Chime is a financial technology company. It's a fintech, not a bank. Banking services provided by the Bancorp Bank, North America. Okay, that's a big bank. And then it says, or Stride Bank. <laughs> okay, so who the heck is Stride Bank? Because if the smaller banks are going to have problems, well, then your money could get stuck. Uh, stuck. Well, Stripe Bank, it's not a huge bank. It's got about $2.7 billion. It's actually larger than Lincoln Savings. Now, just to, to be clear, the assets that Tier 1 banks have, like uh, JP Morgan, assets under management, like how, how much in deposits they actually have, they have $3.6 trillion in assets. You've got a company like uh, those. That's why they're called too big to fail, right? Silicon Valley Bank, which went bankrupt, had about $211 billion in assets. These little banks, the tens of millions to maybe a billion dollars in assets under management, according to BankingStrategist.com, that's scary. That's not a lot of money that's actually with all of these different banks. And the concern here is, my goodness, if all of a sudden people leave these banks, the smaller banks to go to the bigger ones, well, the little ones get screwed. So JP Morgan's sitting at three point, uh, just over $3 trillion in deposits. Bank of America, about 2.4. Citibank, 1.7. Wells Fargo, 1.7. U.S. Bank, uh, $585 billion. You know, you're talking about hundreds of billions to trillions of dollars as opposed to some of these smallers that are sitting at maybe a bill, maybe tens of millions of dollars, Right. It's insane. Now, I actually banked with a small community bank, uh, and last month I mostly moved 95% of our assets away from that small community bank. I did that because I was fearful about the financial crisis that we might be going into, and it just so happened that now banks are starting to fail. So, knock on wood, that was really lucky. Fantastic. My startup, we're safe. You know, we were not even exposed to Silicon Valley Bank anyway, but, you know, I was precautious a month ago. Uh, and now we're at JPM. But anyway, the bank that I had banked with had $186 billion or million dollars under management. Really small, right? But some of the banks that like M1 Finance is using is, is, are one-fourth that size. So I think these banks could be going through massive, massive stress uh, as, as a result of the contagion of Silicon Valley Bank. And any kind of fintech could be exposed. So keep that in mind. If you have cash... Not, and I'm not talking about in a brokerage account, but if you have cash on deposit somewhere, it could be at risk. Uh, so keep that in mind. Very important. 
And as always, if you like my perspective, check out the programs on Building Your Wealth linked down below with the St. Patty's coupon linked down below that you can take advantage of now until the coupon expires at the end of next week. And then what happens after expiration? Price goes up. But you get lifetime access. So even if you're not ready to study now, a lot of people join now. So that way they're in. And then when new content is added or they want to pop into a course member live stream and ask a question, uh, they can do so. All right. That does it for Meet Kevin Report, uh, whatever we're on right now. <laughs> Let's see here. That does it for the Meet Kevin Report number 48. Wow, we're almost at 50. That's cool. We've we've been good, even though my start times have been a little all over the place. I'm working on it. Uh, it's trying to get it to be earlier and earlier, but so far it seems like it's been lagging. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. We'll see you in the next one. And yes, Wells Fargo is considered a tier one. Uh, credit unions are smaller banks, right? Keep that in mind. Uh, revolt. Okay, let me look Revolt really quick because a lot of people are going to Revolt. That's actually a good question. Uh, revolt Bank. So Revolt, one app. One app, all things money. All right, let me just quickly look at it. Allow cookies. Good Lord. Hold on. Bank. Revolt, discover, open banking. Okay, so open banking. Oversee all your money in one place. Connect all your bank accounts. Add money securely. Uh, here's how open bank. I don't know. I don't really know what this is. Is this just sort of an app that puts all your money in one place? I don't think they actually are a bank. They're sort of a payment processor. Hmm. But yeah, like I said, I don't know what they are. Yeah, I I don't know. But I would do your own. Research on wherever you have your money. Uh, is he even reading this chat? Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, thank you so much again. I appreciate you all being here. It's a blast to see you all here uh, in the morning this early. It's fantastic. Cash being held at Weeble or M1 Finance and Stocks. So, okay. Quick follow-up. If you have money at a brokerage like Weeble or Robinhood and it's not in the cash sweep program like M1 Save or Spend uh, at M1 Finance or the cash portion at Robinhood where you're depositing it, where you could use a debit card to get it out. If your cash is at a brokerage, which could be Robinhood or Weeble or whatever, you are protected by SIPC up to $500,000, right? But yes, look, is it true that your money's probably safer at a bigger institution even from a brokerage point of view? Yeah, probably. Uh, anyway, look, I'm, I don't want to, you know, spread FUD or whatever. I just, I just don't want anybody to lose money. Uh, so anyway, good luck out there. We'll see you in the next one. Bye.